like to read three passages tonight, uh, short ones. The first is from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 42. Hear the Word of God. Now, when they heard this, that is Peter's Pentecostal sermon, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And then just one verse from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. And then Colossians 2, Colossians 2, 9 through 15. Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him that's in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Thus far, the reading of God's sacred word. Dear church family, this morning we have witnessed six children being baptized and pleaded with God that he would grant his benediction, not only on the baptism, but also in their personal lives as they grow up, that they might know that internal 
baptism of regeneration by the Holy Spirit so that they would be able to move from that outer circle, that external covenant relationship with God into the internal, essential, saving relationship with the triune God through Jesus Christ. And tonight, in God's providence, I'm called to preach from Lord's Day 27, which deals with the question of why these six children and only, but all children of confessing members should be baptized before coming to personal faith themselves. And I want to provide for you this evening, God helping me, a biblical, a clear, and I hope in some ways a winsome defense of what we properly call covenantal baptism. Covenantal baptism. Now, from the very outset, we want to acknowledge that, sadly, the question before us tonight has often divided well-meaning Christians, just as has the question in the Lord's Supper of what is the exact nature of the spiritual or physical presence of Christ in the Supper. It's ironic in a way that the sacraments which point to the union and communion between God's people and Christ, and therefore their union and communion with each other, have actually divided Christians in ways that ought to grieve us. So we sense a deep sense of sorrow as we realize that because of our lack of clarity in the past and lack of unity of understanding the Scriptures with regard to these two good sacraments that God has gifted His church today that we have turned these sacraments into instruments of division. And so our humble desire tonight is to be true to the Scriptures in our presentation of the proper subjects of baptism with regard to covenant children. Why do we do this? And do we have the scriptural support for it and the theological evidence for it in the Bible? And we need to say that, yes, there is not one particular text in the Bible that says, thou shalt baptize covenant children. If that were there... There would be no such thing as Baptists, credo-Baptists. Credo meaning they believe only in adult baptism or after people have come of age. And paedo-Baptism means that you also baptize infants of the seed of, of believers. There, there just would be no debate. Now, what we are arguing, and the Reformers and Puritans have argued, is that there are several arguments in the Bible that support this sacrament being administered to covenant children when taken cumulatively give overwhelming evidence that we need to do this. 
and that this is a blessing for the church, providing we don't err to one extreme or to the other. And I want to explain that tonight and give you some of those arguments, which if you take them together, I trust that you will agree with me by the end of this service that they are convictingly persuasive and encouraging and uplifting because God is a God who delights to work along covenantal lines in families. He's a family God from generation to generation. And that is signified and sealed both in adult baptism and in infant baptism. So, some of the texts we want to look at tonight, I've listed on, on the outline. There'll be a few more, but let me just read those, uh, those three. First from Acts 2, 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. First Corinthians seven fourteen. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. And holy there means the generic meaning of the word holy. Separate. Separate from the world. So your children are not cast in with the Gentile children who've never heard the gospel. There's a difference covenantally between those who've not heard the truth and those who have and who grow up under the benefits of the covenant. And then Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In whom you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him, that is Christ, from the dead. So we're going to look at these texts a bit and do that in conjunction with Lord's Day 27. Lord's Day 27, questions 72 to 74. Is then the external baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? Not at all. For the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost cleanse us from all sin. Why then does the Holy Ghost call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks thus, not without great cause, to wit, not only thereby to teach us that as the filth of the body is purged away by water, so our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, but especially that by this divine pledge and sign, he may assure us that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins as really as we are externally washed with water. And then question 74, which will be our focal point tonight, are infants also to be baptized? Yes. For since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, And since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult, they must therefore, by baptism as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church. 
and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is now instituted in the New Covenant or the New Testament. So our theme, should covenant, covenantal children be baptized? And I want to look at three basic thoughts with you. First, I want to go a, a bit deeper with you tonight than I have in the past on this Lord's Day on understanding the basic issues, understanding the basic issues. And then second, give you five additional arguments for covenantal baptism, briefly, and then look at some practical applications of infant baptism. So first, first I want to look at covenant membership in the Old Testament and then covenant membership in the New Testament. See, this is one of the problems between the Reformed and the Baptists. As much as we love our Baptist brethren who fear the Lord and often raise their families in a God-fearing covenantal way, we do have this difference that they have a much sharper cleavage between the Old Testament and the New. And we see a continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we see that continuity also between circumcision, a sign and seal of membership in the Old Testament, and baptism, which took its place in the New Testament, which is a sign and seal of covenant membership in our day and our generation. So, a significant piece of the baptism puzzle involves correctly defining and determining the covenantal standing of children born into households where at least one, but of course preferably both, parents are full confessing members of Christ's church. So we've got to define what we mean by covenantal children. And the simplest definition is that we mean all infants and young children who are under the God-given authority, so whether biological or adopted, of confessing parents who represent them. As a parent, you represent your children. You promise, you heard it this morning again, to raise them up in the nurture of the Lord according to the doctrines of the Bible. And therefore, they also are included Just as Old Testament children were included in the covenant through circumcision, so today children are included through baptism. Now, it's an indisputable fact, isn't it, that infants and young children all throughout the Bible are under what we call the federal, or you could say covenantal, representation of their parents. That's why, for example, just the book of Numbers alone uses the word family, I think, a hundred or more times. Because God is a God who work, tends to work 
along covenantal lines through families from one generation to another. Oh, yes, he saves thousands of people. And I've met thousands of them around the world who are first-generation Christians. But you see, then those Christians join the church and they and their seed are baptized and, and they come into that covenantal stream. God is a covenant-keeping God. And it's His way of carrying out His covenant by having parents represent Him and be representatives, therefore, of their children to raise them in the truth and to bless those means, be it a Christian school, be it the, the Christian church, but be it also especially the parenting. The parents ultimately have the primary responsibility and therefore the vows they take as they represent their children. Now, the interesting thing in the Old Testament that you must grasp, you must grasp, and Baptists don't grasp this, is that covenant membership is not founded ultimately on the professed faith of the individual but upon the sovereign and gracious choice of God. God chose Israel and drew them into covenant. Moses declares of the entire nation of Israel, the Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest people of all people, but because the Lord loved you, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers. So the obvious point here is that God's covenantal arrangement and choice in the Old Testament of whom he would enter into covenant with is irrespective of any quality exercised or any free will choice by the recipients of his covenantal love. And therefore, by bringing in the children, as God obviously did, by giving the male a sign representing also the female that an eight-day-old infant must be circumcised, a weak infant, stained with original sin, incapable of doing any good, God sovereignly, graciously counts this child as one of his holy people. The child still has to be made holy internally, but separate from the Gentiles, his holy people, set apart from the Gentiles, that inclusion is entirely based upon God's declarative word of promise. I will be your God and you shall be my people. And hence in the Ten Commandments, as you heard this morning again, I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You see, This is the covenant of grace. This is one-sided, gracious inclusion on God's part. Now, that also involves responsibilities, of course. Israel then must respond, the parents and the children. They must keep covenant with that God who promises that he will love his people for a thousand generations. And so Moses says of this same covenant Lord, 
that he also repays, think about this, them that hate him, he's talking about his covenant people, to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. This is the continuation of Deuteronomy 7. So God sovereignly chooses, God sovereignly blesses, but if the covenant people rejects him, if these children baptized this morning grow up and reject God, you see, and go their own way in the world and live for themselves, God's curse comes upon them. So it's a great privilege to grow up in the church. Oh, yes. It's a great door opener that God declares He's willing to be our God and the God of the children. But it's also a great warning. There's blessing and cursing. Thomas Brooks put it this way. He said, the center of hell is reserved for those who've been under the truth all their lives and have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ but rejected Him. Center of hell. Because you've had all these opportunities that the Gentiles, many of them, have never had. So over and over you see, in old, I, I can't go through all the text tonight, but in the Old Testament you see it over and over, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, the covenant is associated with blessing and with cursing. And covenant membership, therefore, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, always involves the Israelite parents and their children. Now, what about in the New Testament? Do we see a parallel here? In other words, within a post-fall world, is it always the case that a distinction exists between covenant membership and believing members of the same covenant? Or is it true also in the new covenant age that there are those who belong to the covenant, at least externally, who don't really know the essence of the covenant? And I'm going to argue with you, of course, that that is true of the New Testament as well. It's exactly the same parallel. Exactly the same parallel. So, let me back up a moment here and say this. The Bible uses the word covenant 292 times. Only 18 of those are in the New Testament. So one of the problems when you disassociate New Testament from Old Testament, and you don't see the bonding together of them, one of the problems is that you lose so much of this covenantal emphasis in a biblical way. Because the covenant you see, is a theme that undergirds the whole of Scripture. And you can't, you can't separate the two Testaments. Thomas Watson said, they're like the two lips of God. You need two lips when you speak, and God speaks through two lips, old and new. And so, it's not until you get in the New Testament to Hebrews 8 to 10, Hebrews 8 to 10, where you really have this clear teaching, contrast in the old covenant with the new, saying basically they're essentially saying the same thing, but then saying the New Testament is better, the New Testament 
or the new covenant rather, is better because it's ushered in now through him who's come. Through the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so now we have this new and better mediator because he's already come. He's now at the right hand of the Father. He's died as testator and he's entered alive into the eternal holy place of heaven guaranteeing the new covenant promises which will be richer and fuller and freer to all the nations rather than just little Israel, which is like a pinprick on the globe. So Hebrews concludes this section of chapters 8 through 10 by saying, because Jesus has secured the new covenant promises, which build on the old, but are bigger and broader and fuller and richer, let us therefore, Hebrews 10.23, hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful who has promised. So it's evident then that the warnings of Hebrews, which is such a covenantal book, parallel the warnings of the Old Testament for those who reject this mediator. And again and again, the book of Hebrews tells us in one way or another, it's a fearful thing to be under the truth and to fall into the hands of the living God unprepared. Hebrews 10.31 In other words... Hebrews is saying to us, there's a mixed covenant community. It's possible to be in a new covenant context, to be baptized as a child, to grow up in the church, even to become a full member of the church, and still not be saved. There are unbelieving members, there are unbelieving children who ultimately reject the covenant blessings, even though they might stay externally in the church of Christ. And these will surely also face the vengeance of God, the author to the Hebrews says. So, what we need to understand, and many churches don't understand, even Reformed churches, is that it's not a one-to-one equation, an overlapping equation today, that all members of the church are in the covenant, in the internal essential element of genuine salvation. To be in the new covenant is the grace of God. But you need to come to faith, to true faith. Profess faith, genuine faith, saving faith, is the required result of truly belonging to the new covenant, as Hebrews 8 through 10 makes plain so many times. So the starting point of the new covenant initiation and inclusion is just like the old covenant. It's God's free and gracious good pleasure. But just like the old covenant, faith is not the ground of the covenant status, but it's the required effect. When you're in covenant with God, you need to repent of your sins. You need to believe the gospel with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, this parallelism then of the sign and seal of circumcision, the sign and seal of baptism, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, paralleling blessing and cursing according to God's promises is critical to understand. 
Because as soon as you understand that the blood, bloody sacraments of the old covenant had to be replaced by the bloody, bloodless, sorry, bloodless sacraments of the new covenant, because Christ has shed his blood once for all, and there's no more blood to be shed. Once you understand that, you see, then you understand, and Hebrews 10 makes that, that plain, there's no more blood to be shed. Then you understand that these two sacraments are the bloodless sacraments that look back to Jesus and his atonement, just as the Old Testament sacraments look forward to Jesus and his atonement, and thus must be bloody until the blood has been shed. And so, in circumcision, in circumcision, you see, it's critical to understand that if you didn't get circumcised in Israel, God says you should be cut off from your people. This is his sign that he's their covenant God. This sign guarantees his promises will be fulfilled. He will work among his people. He will work from generation to generation. He says over and over again. And yet he calls on Israel to repent and believe in him alone and says there will be in Israel those who reject him and they shall be cursed. And so circumcision is the authenticating mark that certifies the truth of God's promise that he will give righteousness to those who respond by grace through faith in him alone. And so here you have this, this, this truth, you see, that Abraham is justified by faith, not because of his faith, but because of God's promise, and he believes in that promise, and he's saved, you see. Romans four eleven. So for Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, for example, their circumcision signified and sealed the same thing. Namely, their covenant Lord freely offers righteousness to them who receive it through spirit work faith. Ishmael did not receive it. Ishmael did not receive it. So God's curse was upon him. Abraham and Isaac did. So God's blessing is upon them. And exactly the same thing in the New Testament. Blessing and cursing. Colossians 2, 11 and 12, a critical text in establishing the link between circumcision and, and baptism. And uh, Paul is saying here, circumcision and baptism both point to the spiritual reality that a person who's dead in sin is made alive when he or she is united to Christ, the one mediator who died on account of sin, but victoriously rose again over sin, death, hell, and grave. And Paul's point here is that what matters preeminently, you see, is not whether you just receive the physical sign. That's not sufficient for salvation. We don't count these children baptized this morning. Now, as saved and say, we don't have to evangelize you because we presuppose your regeneration. Jesus loves you and you're in Christ. No, no. Not at all. But we say to them, you must be saved. But God has put his triune name upon you. He's declared his willingness to save 
children from each generation, so you have every reason to believe that He's mercifully inclined to you, you need to repent. You need to believe the gospel. You need to flee to the Savior. And so children understand when they grow up that when they grow up under the external covenant, they have immense privileges. Paul says, does Israel then, if they didn't obey God, didn't they have any privileges? Oh, he says, they had much every way, for to them was committed the sacred oracles of God. And you children, you young people, you have huge responsibility because to you is committed the sacred Bible, the sacred oracles of God in this church, in your family, at school. You get it everywhere. You're called to respond to God's overtures in His covenant in which He says, I'm willing to be your God by repenting and believing this gospel and surrendering your life to Him. So it's the same. Old Testament circumcision, New Testament baptism. That's what Colossians 2 is saying. John Kelvin says in this text, Paul is striving to demonstrate that baptism is for the Christians what circumcision previously was for the Jews. And you see this whole dichotomy of blessing-cursing under the covenant. Actually, you see it this morning in the baptismal formula prayer, don't you? There's this long sentence in the beginning of the prayer about crossing through the Red Sea and about Noah and his family. And you look at that sentence and you say to yourself, what does that mean? But you see... What, what, what our forefathers are saying there is that when they went through the Red Sea, see, not all of Israel was of Israel. Some of them went through it, like through the water and came out. They were like baptized through the Red Sea in a sense, um, not in a technical sense. But they were all passing through the sea, but they didn't all be saved. They weren't all saved. Some were rejected. Some, the curse would come upon them. Same thing. With Noah. Him was in Noah's family. He was saved in the ark externally, but he wasn't saved in his soul. So the evidence, you see, of both the Old Testament and New Testament clarifies that the spiritual significance of circumcision and baptism are the same. If you're united through Christ, with Christ through his death and resurrection, you're an heir of the gospel promise given to Abraham. Galatians 3.29. If you're not, however, Circumcision and baptism threatens and warns you of the very same judgment that fell upon Jesus Christ in bearing the sins of his people. You will now have to bear your own sins because you have rejected the Son of God. Now, I just threw a lot at you, but I hope you just take away this one thought. If you take away this one thought, it will help you. Circumcision has been replaced by baptism. And in the covenant, there is a side of blessing, which God normatively loves to work in the children, in the seed of believers. The parents may hope that he will do that. And so you, you go forward and you plead on that. And, and you teach your children in family worship. And you do all those things Reverend Bio mentioned this morning. In that hope that this promising, covenant-keeping God, who delights to save children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, will bring all your children to salvation. Maybe one at five years of age. Maybe one at ten. Maybe one at fifteen. Maybe one at twenty. But you plead that promise. 
and you hope in that covenant promise. But if eternity reveals that one or maybe two or even three of your children were not saved, you see, that's because they rejected these promised covenantal blessings and the curse of God came upon them despite your efforts. But their punishment will be worse because they rejected these covenant blessings. They were under the prayers of the church. They were under the teaching in the home. They were under the sermons. They were, they were under the Christian school. See, there's a blessing and there's a cursing side. So to deny a mark of separation to the children is foreign to the Old Testament and foreign to the New Testament. To have children excluded, children of believers excluded from the covenant is entirely foreign to what the Bible is saying. And I want to show that now in, in five, five quick additional arguments, and I'll be brief on these. Number one, the expanding nature of the new covenant. Hear me carefully. The expanding nature of the new covenant versus the old covenant. New covenant, Gentiles, whole world. Old covenant, pinprick of a place on the globe, tiny little place called Israel. Expanding nature of the new versus the old covenant of grace argues in favor of covenantal baptism. Now, let me explain this. You see, as the new covenant now encompasses all nationalities, no longer, Galatians 3.28, no longer restricted to the Jewish people, it's appropriate to assume, isn't it, that the number that God brings in will also be more expansive. And if the covenant sign somehow in the new covenant would be more restrictive, and not be applied to the children, that would be incredibly odd. So, if I, as a pastor, were to offend you, and I come to you and I realize my mistake and say, would you please forgive me? Probably 99% of you would forgive me right away. Because you'd see I was really sorry, and you'd say, well, I'm human too. And yeah, I forgive you. That's wonderful. But it'd be harder for you to forgive me if I offended your children, wouldn't it? Because you care, you care deeply about your your children. Parents feel strongly about their children and their rightful place and privileges, be it at home, be it at school, be it in society, and especially in the church, where you hold your deepest convictions of all, your spiritual Religious convictions. So now take that thought and, and pretend now. I want you all to pretend you are a Jewish father. Okay? You've got five kids. And you've grown up and your father has talked to you about God's covenant faithfulness and your grandfather and your great-grandfather. And say they've all been true, true Jews in, in the spiritual sense of the word. They've all been saved. And they've told you, you've got these incredible covenant privileges. And it's signified and sealed to you by circumcision. And that God is willing to be your God. 
And you must not just believe the truth outwardly, you must know it inwardly by the Holy Spirit. You must repent of your sin. You must believe in the coming Messiah. And now suddenly in the new covenant, when everything is richer and fuller and everything is overturned and the gospel is going out around the whole world, suddenly your children have no covenant sign at all? In this richer age, this better covenant, your children are excluded? There's no mark? There's no baptism? There's no circumcision? There's no covenant sign. They're, they're, they're grouped. See, the Baptist view is just one circle. You're either in or you're out. But there's no separation now between you and Gentile children who never heard the gospel. What would you do? Well, I think the first thing I'd do is I'd, I'd try to get an appointment with, I, I don't say this irreverently, but I'd try to get an appointment with Peter and with Paul and with James and with Jude and say, what in the world is going on? In this richer age, our children are excluded? Is God no longer a covenant God for our children? Please explain this to me. This is really odd. And you'd find it in the book of Acts. You'd find it in the epistles. They'd have to explain and defend this very strange view that suddenly children have a lesser place in the new and better covenant than they had in the old covenant. How strange. Derek Thomas has helpfully made, this com- helpfully made this comment. Every single biblical covenant of the Old Testament, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all included children. And now the new covenant doesn't. Doesn't make sense, does it? John Murray writes this, If infants are excluded now, it cannot be too strongly emphasized that this change implies a total and complete reversal of the earlier divinely instituted practice. So we must ask, do we find any hint or intimation of such a reversal anywhere in the Old Testament or anywhere in the New Testament? And Murray says there's not one such reference. In fact, there's no talk about it whatsoever because it's just assumed. Of course, children are still included. And of course, Colossians 2, 11, 12 says that the new sign must be bloodless and therefore baptism takes the place of circumcision. But there's no change in the subjects. There's no change in the subjects. So it's still the adults who come professing faith and their children. And therefore, Acts 2, 39 says it exactly that way. This is pure covenant language. And if you're that Jewish father, and you were there on Pentecost Day, you heard Peter preach his sermon. And when Peter would say this, for the promise is unto you and to your children, if you're baptized, then you baptize them, you see, verse 38. And to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, you're going to immediately say, oh yes, my children are included in this covenant. Of course. Of course. Number two, rather than hearing exclusion from the covenant, Peter, as I just mentioned, gives the very same promise given in the Davidic covenant. Really, it's drawn from the Old Testament. The promise is unto you and to your children. That's covenantal shorthand language for the covenant of grace, which embodies the promise of salvation 
falling upon one generation after another. Between me, Genesis 17, 7, and thee, and thy seed after thee. So as one writer puts it this way, Peter here underlines the identity of the covenant of grace under all dispensations and continuity of the covenant pattern in which promises made to believers are extended to their children. Now, you need to understand that this is immensely important to teach to our children. So I can turn to my son or my daughters as they grew up, and I can say, son, daughters, God has baptized you. Not to make you a member of the church. You are a member by birth. Actually, ultimately. But in baptism, he's confirming that membership. He's signifying and sealing it to you. He's bringing you formally under his covenant mercies. And he's declaring that he's willing to be your God. And he's asking you, as the Puritans would say, to improve your baptism. That's a Maybe not the best word. But that's what they meant by that was you make use of your baptism. You, you claim the covenant privileges. You come to God and you say, Lord, thou art willing to be the God of, of, of me and my sisters and my brothers. And because we're in this privileged covenant line. And yet we need to be saved. Oh God, save me. Oh God, show me my sins. Oh God, lead me to Christ. That's the way you're to come to, to God, children believing that God can do this and will do this and promise to do this from generation to generation to generation. So this idea that you have seven or eight children and, oh, what a wonder, what a wonder if one of them would ever get saved that some of us perhaps grew up with is not the biblical understanding of covenant. The biblical understanding of covenant is that God normatively works in the covenant seed. Normatively works in that covenant seat. So we have large expectation of God that He will work in our children. Now, it still has to happen. We don't fall to the other side of presupposed regeneration and say, well, there's no need for this at all. Oh, of course not. Every conversion is a miracle. Every conversion of one of our children is a miracle. This is a great wonder. But you see, the point you need to embrace here is that God is in the conversion business. And God is in the covenant business. And God delights to save children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. God is a miracle-working God. And therefore, we have expectation. Our expectation is not upon us. It's not upon our parenting. It's not upon Grace Christian Academy. It's not upon our school. It's not upon our church. It's upon the grace of God, the covenant-keeping character of God. That's our expectation. And that gives us real hope because God never fails his promises. So, that's number, number, number two. Number three, household baptisms. Household baptism, the New Testament, are another evidence. It's not maybe the most powerful ones, as, as powerful as the ones I've just given you, I hope. But it is, it is a powerful one still. Let me explain. There's 12 recorded instances of Christian baptisms in the New Testament. Now, many more occurred, of course, but they're not written down. 12 individual occasions. 
A third of them, it says, there were household baptisms. Now, boys and girls, what do you think of household? I know what you think. You think of mom, dad, brother, sister, and me. That's not a household in Bible times. Bible times. People, a whole family clan lived in one house. The servants, the relatives, cousins, uh, close associates even sometimes. But the whole family clan lived in a household. Jonathan Watt, a scholar in this area, says, The Grecian Roman household included not only the master, the husband, and the father, and of course the mother and children, but also the older generation, the grandparents, and the extended family, including uncles, aunts, cousins, and various in-laws. Can you imagine four households where everyone is baptized? The whole household. The whole household. And there's not one child in all those households? That'd be, that'd be very, very strange indeed. Brian Chapel says this, when we read the New Testament accounts of baptism, every person identified as having a household present at his or her conversion had the whole household baptized. If children had somehow been excluded from the entire household, reflect for a moment on this situation. Consider how the head of a Jewish, remember you're the head of the Jewish household right now in your imagination, Consider how the head of a Jewish household would have reacted when others in the household, including his servants and resident relatives, were baptized on the basis of his faith while his own children were denied the covenant sign. Again, it makes no sense. Number four. 1 Corinthians 7.14 We're told that if one parent one parent is, is, is a professing, professing Christ. That parent can sanctify the other parent. But even if that doesn't happen, the children are still set apart. Still holy in the set apart sense of the word. How are they set apart? A Baptist can't explain that. They're not set apart. There's no sign. There's no seal. So that certainly is a strong argument as well for the continuation in the new covenant of receiving children receiving the sign and seal, for they need to be set apart. And then number five, I just add this one because you should, you should know this, that the vast majority of Reformed interpreters and commentators in the great age of the Reformation and nearly all the Puritans would agree with the things I said tonight. And they were paedo-baptists. They saw the family connection between God and his covenant people. So, and that goes really all the way back to Augustine, but, but I'm talking about all about Luther and Calvin and Bootser and Perkins and Edwards and all the Puritans and all the major Reformed consensus documents, 39 articles, Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Standards, and so on. John Bunyan was about the only exception until the very end of the Puritan age. Some, of, some started moving more in the Baptist direction. So these are five additional arguments. I hope I, I didn't need to persuade you, but I hope you're even more convinced now that this must be done. Our children must be set apart
by the Lord. Now, what are the practical applications of that? Five quick practical applications. Number one, baptism essentially points us to the sweet, mystical union with Christ by His atoning blood. So let us remember, the water you saw this morning is just a sign and a seal pointing to and speaking of the blood of Christ. So that blood needs to be applied to our souls. We need to come into personal union with Christ by faith. And out of that flows this sweet communion with Jesus that is better than anything else this world can offer. And so baptism itself doesn't do anything for us at that moment. But it does declare God's promises to us, expresses his willingness so that we can come to him and say, Lord, I need the internal essence of what baptism is speaking about. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you've got to do, boys and girls, young people. If you're not saved yet, you've got to plead that. Lord, I've been baptized. I've been separated from the world. Help me. Help me to flee to Christ alone for salvation. That's foundational. That's number one. Number two, you need to remember that baptism as a promise and a pledge that is double-sided. I tried to stress that in this sermon. It's double-sided. It offers you wonderful blessings, but it also pronounces solemn curses if you go on in life without this Savior. Don't, don't ever lean on your baptism as a substitute for being born again. And don't, don't ever say, There's no hope for me to be born again. God wouldn't be merciful to me. Don't ever say, well, if I'm not elected, I won't be saved. That's never, never the language of the Bible. The covenant-keeping God elects a multitude no man can number. You're a sinner. You could never be saved without God's election. Election is the friend of sinners, not the enemy. Election is what gives us hope. Covenant is what gives us hope. So you come to God just as you are. And you say, Lord, help me not to destroy myself. Help me not to bring the curse down upon myself that I've rejected thee. And all the teaching I get, all the teaching I get at church, at home, at school. Please, please, children, young people, Jesus is offering you his mercy, himself. He's offering you himself. He's offering you the gospel. Every Sunday from this pulpit, every day in whatever Christian school you go to, and every day in your home as your father talks to you at family worship and brings the gospel to you again and again and again. And all three are saying, God desires to save children. He wants, Malachi 2.15 says, a godly seed He wants that, and he will get that, and he will save children. But you've got to be that dad, father, who is Abraham this morning. I know, I know 
that you will command your children to walk in the ways and the statutes and the ordinances and the gospel of our God. Can God say that of you as a father, as a mother? See, that's critical. That's critical. God uses means to bring in these children. And one of the most important means he uses is God-fearing parents who feel the weight of the souls of their children and who know what it means to cling to and to plead upon the covenant mercies of our God. I think I told you this many, many years ago, but I'll just say it one more time now because it's so appropriate and it comes to mind. But uh, in our family, when I grew up, one of the children acted out uh, quite badly for a little while and um, ran away from home. It was very hard on my parents. Didn't know where the child was. Very hard. My dad had a key to the church. Now, one day he was going by the church and uh, he just went in and he just, he just fell. He just fell on the place where the baptismal font had been 18 years before when this sibling was baptized. And he just said, oh God, have respect, have respect to thy covenant. Is it not thy promise, Lord? I plead upon thy covenant. Have mercy upon this child. He went home. Ten minutes later, he was home. Walks in the door. And my mother says, our child called. The child's coming back home. They were just overwhelmed with joy. My dad says, when did you get the call? Ten minutes ago. Right while he was face down, pleading covenant mercies. Oh, plead. Plead for those wayward children. Some of you have prodigal children who are far gone. You, you think there's no hope for them. There is hope. He's a covenant-keeping God. Plead with God for His covenant mercies until the day you die. Hezekiah. I often think of him. How he must have pleaded. He must have pleaded to the very day he died. And 15 years later, Manasseh gets saved. He who filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood, blood of the saints from one end to the other. The prayers that you plead now are laying at the throne of grace forever. Be more concerned, be more concerned to lay at the throne of grace covenant-grounded prayers for your children than to leave them the treasury of gold or silver, said Matthew Henry. Then number three. Don't underestimate the baptism of your children. God desires the covenant seed. So plead, covenant-keeping God, do as thou hast said. Fulfill thy own promises in my family out of thy sheer abounding grace. Number four, don't overestimate the baptism of your covenant children. Don't say they don't need to be 
evangelize. You know, I wrote that book some years ago, Bringing the Gospel to Covenant Children. How to talk to your children. How to, how to, how to speak to them covenantally. That's the burden of that book. And uh, I, I say right in that book, you've got to evangelize your children. You've got to call them to repentance and faith. There was a local minister. You don't know that, but there was a local minister here. And people were reading that book in his church, and he got alarmed because he believed in presupposed regeneration. So he preached six sermons in a row against that book. Because he said, we don't have to evangelize our children. Our children are saved. We just tell them Jesus loves them and everything is well. That's an overestimation. Any covenant conception that swallows the need for personal regeneration and experiential conversion is overestimating baptism. And fifth, fifth, finally, bring to your children the importance of their baptism. Talk to them about it. Talk to them about it, parents. That God is so gracious. He's put his triune name upon them. He's imprinted on them. This is a sign. This is a seal. And then say to them, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Forsake every wicked way. Return to the living God. For he will abundantly pardon. He loves to save children. And children, don't, don't waste your life. Don't waste one more year. Seek him now. Spend your whole life in the service of the Lord. Hating sin, loving Christ, pursuing holiness, worshiping with praise, with doxology, the faithful, covenant-keeping God. So, should covenantal children be baptized? Absolutely. And let us be praying as a church community, not just for our own nuclear little families, but let us be praying for all the children of this church, that God will baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that they will live lives dedicated, holy, solely to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we pray thy blessing upon this effort to make covenantal baptism biblically clear, but also to make it personal. And I do pray that we would see both sides, the blessing side and the cursing side, and that we would not, not improve our baptism by fleeing to Thee and crying out for mercy, not finding rest until we find our rest in Thee. Please grant to our children and our teenagers and our adults to be able to say, for me to live is Christ. And I thank God for his covenant mercies in Jesus, which have penetrated my soul and transformed me to hate sin and to love the triune God. So please bless us, Lord. Go with us into this week. Keep us from sin. Keep us walking in thy ways. Bless us as we, as we leave for, for just a, a short week again in Brazil. And let thy benediction rest upon this, this conference. And to be merciful to all of us in whatever we're called to do in this week. Keep us from sudden death. 
Keep us in thy covenantal mercies. Bring us into that internal circle, the essence of it all, through regeneration, and be a wonder-working God for us, a God who delights to save sinners, just like us. In Jesus' name, amen.